guard your heart from anyone or anything that draws you away from the Lord. The sin, any sin you tolerate, will metastasize into more sin. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. First Kings 11, fellow students, we're going to take a look at a very uh, momentous chapter in the history of King Solomon and also the nation. Just by way of context, uh, Solomon, the son of King David, was anointed king over Israel. He was about 20 years old, 19 or 20. God granted him, as a result of um, his prayer request, a great deal of supernatural wisdom, as well as wealth and fame. Now, beginning in the fourth year of his reign, Solomon began to build the temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, which took seven years to complete. He then built storage cities, military fortresses, defensive walls, trading posts, administrative buildings, palaces. That took another 20 years. So God gave Israel peace on all sides uh, compared to David, who, of course, was the king of war, and Solomon became proverbially rich and famous. So 20 years after uh, he began the temple, it's now Solomon's in his mid-40s. So he's more than halfway through his reign. God appeared to Solomon a second time, 2 Kings chapter 9, and God reminded Solomon that he had answered his prayer for wisdom. Solomon, you asked for wisdom when you became king, and I granted it to you. And God also, for the second time, reiterated the terms of the covenant. Now, when God repeats something to you, it is because you need to hear it again. That is generally not a good sign as to your comprehension or obedience the first time. And God said, Solomon, remember I told you, if you keep my covenant, like your father David had done, I will establish a throne forever. But if you disobey my covenant, you turn your back on me, you serve other gods and worship them, I will cut Israel off from the land, which means they're going into exile. And this magnificent temple, a wonder of the world, will become, quote, a heap of ruins. Now, the temple was what? The meeting place between the God of Israel and the nation of Israel. The mercy seat was the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest went to sprinkle blood once a year, the Day of Atonement. So it was the meeting place between Israel and their king, Yahweh. And the temple, in God's perspective, only mattered if the heart of the people was right. Now today, where does God dwell? In you and I. He takes up residence through his Holy Spirit in your heart. Our temple is, his temple is our us. And therefore, that's why the Bible speaks continuously of holy living, because it's the, you are the dwelling place of Almighty God himself. So God was personally warning Solomon a second time. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Obedience brings blessing. You could write that down, take it to the bank. It always works. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. 
Now, in the meanwhile, in the last 20-some years, Solomon has been growing in wealth and influence and fame. If you look at 1 Kings 9 to 11, a couple of chapters, it gives you a partial listing of the wealth of this man. His annual income in gold was 661, 666 talents of gold. It's about 25 tons. 25 tons of gold bullion came every year into the kingdom from taxes and tolls and customs and trade and tribute from vassal states and gifts. Um, you have 25 tons of gold at 1,500 an ounce, which is cheap. Today it's about 2,000 an ounce. That's about 1.2 billion U.S. dollars in income. His net worth at this point in time has been estimated at about 2.1 trillion. Just to give you an idea, there were only about 2 million residents in the land. 2 million Jews lived in Israel at this point. So there's an enormously wealthy empire, the, the most wealthy in the world. Now he was not only rich, he was extremely famous. And many people were traveling to Jerusalem to see his wealth and to hear the wisdom that God put in his heart. Now, it's imperative that you understand why God gave Solomon this great wisdom. It wasn't just because he asked for it, and it certainly wasn't because of his own ego. God gave Solomon great wisdom in order to draw other people from around the world, around that region, to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom that God put in his heart and so that they would be introduced to the God of Israel, Amen. right? So God's a missionary God. God is always reaching people, and he wants to save them from their sins. So he blessed Solomon with wisdom as an attraction so people would come to Jerusalem, hear about Yahweh, and have a relationship with the God of Israel. God does the same thing today. You have been blessed. You and I have been blessed with enormous blessings. Spiritual gifts, aptitudes, etc., etc. And God wants you and I to use those gifts not for self-centered purposes, but to be a blessing to the world so that the world would come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of the New Testament, and be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So, one of the visitors who came was the Queen of Sheba. She traveled with a rather large entourage, about 1,200 miles, a little more than 1,200 miles by camel train from the Arabian Peninsula, which contains Saudi Arabia, and this is modern-day Yemen, which is the southwest corner uh, right next to the Red Sea, Persia, uh, Red sea area, um, all the way up the peninsula to Jerusalem. She came by camel train, probably took several weeks to get there at that point. She had heard about his fame. And more importantly, she heard about the source of his wealth and wisdom, which was the Lord God of Israel. Now, she came as a skeptic. She came and she had prepared difficult questions and riddles for him to be tested by. And scripture says they had extensive conversations, and he answered all our questions transparently and comprehensively. And it says when she saw his wealth, she heard his words and experienced his wisdom, the text says that no more spirit was left in her. She was literally breathless. Now, the reality was we're tempted to think, wow, she was really wowed by all the stuff, and that's true. But what really struck her was the divine supernatural wisdom of God in him. She had an encounter with the divine God of Israel, and it took her breath away. And she told him, she said, everything I heard about you was true, but I didn't even hear the half of it now that I'm here. 
And interestingly enough, the last thing we hear about the Queen of Sheba is she blessed the Lord God of Israel. She said that because God loved Israel, God had given Solomon the throne in order for him to what? Do justice and righteousness. So God gave Solomon the throne, not for self-centered reasons, but to be a blessing and to do justice for God's people and to be a light for the Gentiles so that they would come and be introduced to the God of Israel. We don't know this, but we certainly hope that she left Israel as a proselyte, as a convert to faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, for his part, Solomon continued to amass works and wisdom and wealth and women, all for his own pleasure. Near the end of his life, he looked back and summarized what he had accomplished. This is one of the more sobering passages in Scripture, Ecclesiastes 2.4. This is an autobiographical look back at his life. He's probably nearing 60 at this point, near death. Ecclesiastes is the last thing he wrote, and here's what he said. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Here's the key. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Verse 11 gives the conclusion. Thus I considered all my activities and, Behold, all was futile and a striving after wind. Here's the principle. If, with God's power, you do not discipline your desires, they will dominate you and waste your life. If, with God's power, you do not discipline your desires, they will dominate you and waste your life. In eight verses, Solomon uses the words, I, me, mine and myself 32 times. Instead of managing God's blessing for the glory of God and the good of God's people, Solomon spent God's gifts of health, wealth, wisdom, fame, and power on his own selfish pleasures. He forgot the giver and fell in love with the gift. He elbowed God aside and put himself center stage. Now Solomon was living large without any thought of God. When you are the richest monarch of your era and you confess that you did not deny yourself any pleasure, you know what that means? Self-indulgence on a grand scale. He never said no to any desire he had. You know what that means? Ultimately, his desires controlled him. And he was a slave to his passions. He was pursuing the pleasures of the senses not the pleasures of the soul. He was rich in the stuff of this life, but his relationship with God was deteriorating rapidly. Jesus gave us some perspective when he said in Mark 8.36, what? For what does it profit 
a man, a woman, to what? Gain the whole world and lose your soul, forfeit your soul. Compared to your soul that lives forever, earthly treasures are what? They're like a soap bubble on a hot summer day. They're like a vapor that you breathe out in cold winter wear. It's poof. It's gone. Most of us have lived long enough to understand that time is fleeting. It doesn't take long to get through life. The truth of it is, after building the temple, the first seven years, beginning in year four, Solomon traded his life increasingly for earthly pleasure and treasure. He ignored the God to whom he would give an account. At the very, very end of his life, he seems to have figured out the truth. The very last words he wrote in the very last book he wrote, the very last two verses of Ecclesiastes 12, summarize his conclusions about life, and it sounds like he figured it out, but it was really late in the game. Quote, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is what? Good or evil. Now Solomon begun very well. When God said, I'll give you anything you want, what do you ask for? He asked for wisdom. But little by little, he compromised. He disobeyed degree by degree, and he ended in disaster. How did it happen that the wisest man in the world wound up living like a fool? Well, to do that, you have to go back to God's commandments for Israel's kings that he had given Moses, Deuteronomy 17. God intended for Israel to have kings, and he said, I'm going to give the king some guidelines, some disciplines, some boundary conditions. They shall not cross. Number one, Deuteronomy 7.16, Moreover, he, the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Israel to multiply horses, since the Lord had said to you, you shall never go that way again. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Three guidelines. Gold, horses, women. Solomon began by compromise. And the very first thing we find out a couple chapters ago, it says he worshipped God, which is a good thing. Where did he worship? On the high places that were forbidden as areas of sacrifice because idolatry and pagan sexual practices took place on those high places. So he worshipped God, but he worshipped where God told him not to worship. He compromised from the very first thing. Contrary to God's command, Solomon began to amass gold. He began to import horses and chariots from where? From Egypt, where he was told not to. In the same way that he acquired gold and horses, he acquired women. He married one foreign wife, and then two, and then dozens, and then finally hundreds. He had literally fallen for all three of Satan's primary temptations. You know, Satan's not terribly creative. He knows what works with us, and he does the same temptations over and over and over and over again. John 2.16 says, I think this is 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the lust of the flesh is pretty obvious. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had become the playboy, the Hugh Hefner of his era. 
He valued romance and sex more than his relationship with God. He believed Satan's lie that you can satisfy your soul by indulging your senses. That's a lie. God gave us physical appetites, right? He gave us food, sex, etc. But he also gave us limits on each one of those appetites. Refusing to live within God's limits destroys the very pleasure that God intended us to experience. I don't know if you've ever known anybody that's addicted to anything, but if you're addicted to anything, whether it's food, sex, drugs, whatever you're addicted to, you indulge that addiction not to feel good. You indulge that addiction to avoid feeling bad. So addicts do not enjoy what they abuse. It destroys their ability to enjoy it. And that's true for every single one of God's good gifts. If you abuse God's gifts, you no longer experience the joy that God had created for you. He also had the lust of the eyes. He acquired gold, precious stones, spices, building projects, farms, entertainment, singers, ponds, forests, slaves, etc., etc., Solomon, unfortunately, was not content. He was covetous. He always wanted more. And you say, well, how much more do you want? You're a single individual worth about $2 trillion. How much more do you want? Well, the soul that is not contented in God will never be contented in anything else either. You can never have enough stuff of this life to satisfy your soul. The one word Solomon did not know the meaning of was enough enough. He also struggled with the pride of life. Fame, prestige, power, lots of adulation. People were coming everywhere to ooh and ah over his wisdom and his stuff. He built a military. He had a huge harem. It says even his drinking glasses were made of gold. He said he, he was so rich that he made silver like stones, like rocks. It, they, silver had no value at all, right? He loved his fame and fortune. And ultimately, Solomon pursued money, sex, and power because he did not love God, nor did he believe God. What did God say? If you obey me, I will protect you, I will provide for you, I will bless you. So he didn't believe God like his father David did, so he acquired gold, horses and chariots, and made political alliances through marriage to what? Secure Israel's borders. God had said, if you obey me, I will fight your battles for you. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will give you peace on every side as part of obedience. David understood that. Solomon refused to believe that God would do what he said he wanted to do. And he completely forgot that God was the source of everything, including his wisdom. Ultimately, he trusted in his own wisdom more than God's will. So he, he loved the gifts God gave him, not the giver of the gifts. He actually believed he was so smart he could sin and avoid the consequences. You know, if you play with a rattlesnake long enough, sooner or later, you're going to get bit. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, what? This he shall certainly reap. Now in the financial world, chapter 11 means bankruptcy. 
1 Kings 11 records Solomon's moral bankruptcy. Let's pick up the narrative, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, Termite, I'm sorry, other women, <laughs> from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. Here's the principle. Only marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Period. Only marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. It ain't all about you. If you marry someone who loves you more than Jesus, guess what? Their heart can be corrupted, and so can yours. It says, Solomon loved many foreign women. There are two red flags here. Number one, many, right? What did God design? Monogamy. One spouse was God's original design for marriage. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who'd have thought in our culture that God had a plan, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, marriage is becoming one flesh. It's a new entity that comes from the merging of two separate people. God's plan is real simple. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That's the plan. God tolerated polygamy, but polygamy was man's plan, Satan's plan. God's plan is monogamy, and Solomon violated God's design. Now, not only did he, he, he love many women, he loved many foreign women. Moabites and Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Edomites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The Sidonians were Phoenicians who lived in the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Scripture is filled with admonitions and illustration that God wants his people to only marry people who belong to God as well. God specifically forbade the Israelites from marrying, quote, the people from the land of Canaan. Spiritually mixed marriages have a dismal track record in the Bible. Esau married outside the faith. It caused his parents great grief. Judah married a Canaanite. Samson, our poster child for having trouble with Philistine females. Uh, Ahab married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. I don't know anybody that names their children that. Good thing. And he brought Baal worship into Israel as a result of her. 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Holy Spirit writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what followership has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common for an unbeliever? Now, our culture doesn't believe this. The church, by and large, doesn't believe this. I'm telling you what God's design is. I'm not telling you how people implement God's design. We tend to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We are blessed that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Amen? And because we have done what God has not designed, we experience the consequences of that from time to time. But the Lord is so gracious, he says, there are consequences to your disobeying my word, but my grace is sufficient for you, 
even in your sin. So I want you to know that regardless of whether you've obeyed this or disobeyed this, the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any of our sin if we repent and come back to Him. And God will make a way, even through our sinful decisions, where there seems to be no way. So I want you to have hope in this. But I'm just telling you what God's design is. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, Christian widows are free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Here's why. The Christian belongs to Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You have been what? Bought with the price of his blood. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important relationship in our life, bar none. Here's Here's something you can write down. Anything that draws you closer to Jesus is a blessing. Even a detached retina, right? Anything that draws you closer to Jesus is a blessing, even if it hurts. Anything or anyone who draws you away from Jesus is a curse, even if they're cute and make your heart go pitter-patter. So Solomon held fast to these many foreign women in love. Now, let's get realer. This was probably lust, not love. Lust is self-centered. Love is action that taken for the benefit of the loved one. If Solomon really loved these women, number one, at first he would have obeyed Yahweh and not married a thousand of them. And number two, if he did follow Christ, follow Yahweh, he would have introduced them to Yahweh. He didn't do that. It says he held fast to these in love. It literally means to grab firmly. It really implies that there was a power struggle going on in Solomon's life between God and his wives. God and his wives. And it said, ultimately, he turned his back on God and chased after his wives and chased after their gods. Anybody who thinks they can handle 700 wives and 300 concubines is arrogant and stupid. (laughs) Shall we just put it like it is? When you turn your back on God and you do it your way, you become spiritually stupid. God gives us free will, but he never violates our choices. But he also ensures that they, you certainly will experience the consequences of your choices. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and, quote, his wives turned his heart away, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Here's the principle. Guard your heart from anyone or anything that draws you away from the Lord. Guard your heart from anything or anyone that draws you away from the Lord. Now, King David was the gold standard by which all the kings of Israel and Judah are measured. Israel's first king was Saul. Saul had no heart for the Lord at all. He was disobedient from scratch. David had a full heart for the Lord. Solomon had a half heart for the Lord. David was a sinner. I mean, he sinned in some cases egregiously against the Lord. But one thing you can always say about David, he repented sincerely and he came running back to the Lord immediately when he was convicted about that sin. And as a result of that, God said, this man, even though he's a sinner, is, quote, a man after my own heart. David should give us great hope because we sin egregiously against the Lord. And if we come back and repent sincerely, what does the Lord say? You are a person after my own heart because I want a relationship with you. Now Solomon was a double-minded man. His heart was divided between God and his pagan wives. He made friends with God's enemies. 
He chose to be influenced by them. He loved them. And finally, he conformed to their values and lived like they lived. This is exactly what happened to Abraham's nephew, Lot. Remember Lot? There was not enough land, and Abraham said, Lot, there's not enough land for the two of us. We have these big flocks and herds. Why don't you choose anywhere in the land you want to go? And it says, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the land around Sodom and Gomorrah, that it was well watered, and his greedy little heart said, I'm going to take that land. So he moved close to Sodom because the farmland was good. The next thing we hear, he moved into the city. And the next thing we know, he's now a councilman in the city of Sodom, and he is a leader of a wicked city. Now, that's a progression called circling the drain, right? Don't get too far down that circling the drain. It's very difficult to get out of that. It's impossible without the grace of God. So most of Solomon's marriages were political alliances. They were princesses, over 700 of them. His concubines, on the other hand, were legally acquired sexual companions. They did not have the status or the rights of a wife. Here's the reality. There's almost no chance that Solomon even knew all their names. Let's get real. Let alone knew them as people, individuals, right? No idea. Most harems were acquired for the ego of the monarch. And if you wanted to demonstrate that you were large and in charge, you acquired golden horses and you acquired women as chattel, as property. It was... Sinful then, it was sinful now. Back in Samuel's time, the nation of Israel had what? They said, we want an earthly king who will live and rule just like all the nations. Well, they got it. They rejected God as their king, and now they got a king who is self-centered to the core, who acts just like his pagan neighbors. It says, when Solomon was what? Old. His wives turned his heart away. You know, one of the realities is we are all subject to influence. Yes? Here's the scary part. As we decline in health and capacity, we are even more susceptible to influence. You know who thinks you need care right now? Your children. Your adult children think you are so old that you need help, and they are more than glad to tell you how you should live. Amen? <laughs> Say amen. You know they do, right? We are susceptible to influence. Here's something for you. Be careful who you marry because you will become like your spouse. I can see it happening in front of my eyes the last 10 years. Here's even something scarier. Be careful who you marry because you will become like your spouse's parents because they raised your spouse. That's a little terrifying, yes? Sooner or later, we grow to be like the people we associate with. That's why God commands us to associate with his people, the church. Hebrews 10, 24, he says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's one of the reasons we hang out together here on Sunday mornings. Why? so we can learn from each other, so we can be encouraged by each other, so we can develop the godly habits that people in this room are practicing. Solomon didn't take his own advice. In Proverbs 13, 20, he said what? He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And who does he hang out with? 1,000 pagan women. 
Notice, it does not say may suffer harm. It says will suffer harm. It's guaranteed. You know, we tell our teenagers, look, if you ride along with a, quote, friend who's drinking, you can be stone cold sober, and if they get in an accident, you could be harmed because of their decision. There's an old proverb that says, birds of a feather flock together. People think that you are like the people you hang out with. So don't hang out with fools. Otherwise, you'll probably learn to be one. There's an old Russian proverb I adore. It says, never wrestle with a pig. You both get filthy, but the pig likes it. <laughs> the source of Solomon's problem was his heart. God says the problem with the human heart is that it believes lies and tells lies. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each one according to his ways, according to the results of his disease. So our hearts, the core of who we are, can be deceived, and your heart can also lie to you. Ever been lied to by your heart? Daily. So what's the solution? Solomon writes in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Pay attention to what is influencing you. Today, billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent influencing you on electronic media. The electronic media folks that run those back screens and do all the algorithms spend billions of dollars not hiring electrical engineers, but hiring neuroscientists who know how to give your brain dopamine hits so you will stay addicted to their website for longer so they can sell your attention to advertisers for more money. They know how to addict your attention. You are being influenced all the time when you're on electronic media. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying pay attention to how you're being influenced, right? Most people are addicted to electronic media, especially our young people. Now, the very best way to guard your heart is real simple. Surrender it to Jesus every day. Psalm 139 says what? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Since we are so easily deceived, we need to ask God to search our heart and to reveal to us what is true and what is false. The media today will tell you all sorts of things based on whoever's writing it. It's very difficult to know what is truth or what's falsehood. Ask the Holy Spirit, God who lives in you, to reveal truth to you. By the way, you still have to obey it once you know what it is. If you surrender your heart to Jesus every day, then the Holy Spirit will guide and direct and empower you to do what's right and tell you the truth so you won't be deceived by what's wrong. So you say, well, what's the human heart? Scripture, the heart is the core of who you are. It's your intellect. It's your emotions, it's your will, it's your motives. The heart is the core of who we are. The truth of it is, everyone loves and serves someone or something above all else. Now, God designed the human heart for monotheism, one God. He also designed the human heart for monogamy, one spouse. My happy retirement is one house, one spouse. Just saying. 
It could be more complicated, right? Ultimately, Solomon valued his own selfish lust more than he loved God. His wives and the pleasure they brought him became his idols. By the way, an idol is anything you value more than your relationship with God. Solomon worshipped the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life more than God. He believed Satan's lie that living independently of God would produce more joy than depending on and obeying God. Verse 5. For Solomon went after, pursued, the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives and sacrificed and burned incense to their gods. Here's the principle. The sin that you tolerate will metastasize into more sin. The sin, any sin you tolerate, will metastasize into more sin. So Solomon, the evil he first got into was he tolerated the idolatry of his wives. Then he allowed them and supported them to practice their idolatry, the worship of false gods in the place of one true God. So let's notice the progression. He permitted his wives to sacrifice and worship their own gods. Then he encouraged their idolatry, and it says he built shrines for their gods, temples for their gods, all around Jerusalem. This including, by the way, financially supporting all their priests who came with them from their foreign countries so they could worship their gods in the land of Israel. And then he began to participate himself in their pagan ritual practices with him. Just so you understand what we're dealing with. Ashtaroth is a Sidonian and Canaanite moon goddess. We're going to learn a lot more about her in Baal when we get to Elijah and King Ahab. She was the moon goddess of war, sexual love, and fertility. She was also known as the queen of heaven. And she was often worshipped in tree groves that were located on hilltops or elevated places. There was an Asherah pole, and they would offer sacrifices, they would cut themselves, and they would engage in ritual sexual activity with both male and female priestesses. It was abominable. Chemosh, the chief god of the Moabites, was a fish god whose name probably means destroyer or subduer. And if you wanted his favor, it required human sacrifice. Solomon participated in this. Milcom was also known as Molech was the national god of the Amorites, and worshipers of Molech would burn their babies alive in the outstretched bronze arms of the idol that was heated so hot that the metal glowed. This is evil. Period. Evil. We know about that in our culture. You can call it anything you want. It's evil. The mountain that they did this on was the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Now Solomon didn't begin by worshiping false gods that demanded child sacrifice, but that's where he ended. We, by the way, we rationalize abortion as our culture in the same way, but abortion always results in death. Always. Satan is the master of gradual compromise. He got Solomon, tolerate small sins, rationalize them as they grow, and sooner or later, what happens to the frog in the kettle? You boil to death. 
sooner or later. Verse 9, how did God respond to Solomon's disobedience? Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for this of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Here's the principle. You can choose to obey or disobey God, but God controls the consequences you will experience. That is extremely sobering. You can choose to disobey or obey God. You have free will, but you are not controlling the consequences. God controls the consequences you will experience as a result of your obedience or as a result of your disobedience. Sin always had consequences. God had told Solomon twice, right? Your family's continued ability to maintain the throne depends on your obedience. His disobedience is even more blatant because God personally appeared to him twice. We don't know in a dream, but personally appeared to him twice and warned him twice about the consequences of idolatry. Solomon disobeyed with full knowledge. In the Old Testament, it says that's sinning with a high hand, right? Raised in defiance against God. What does it say about Solomon's view of God? Certainly didn't love him. Did he think God was going to overlook his sin? Or was he just addicted to pleasure in the present and said, well, I'll deal with it tomorrow. You know, I'll deal when I die at some point. No consequences or consequences later. Now, one of the consequences of Solomon's sin was that God raised up enemies who fought against him. Later in the chapter, it says that God raised up Hadad the Edomite and Rezon from the nation of Syria. Now, both of these kingdoms bordered Israel, and these men led bands of raiders that invaded and harassed Israel's borders. God, before this, had given Israel peace on every side. But now that Solomon had broken God's covenant, God raised up enemies to attack Israel. That's extremely sobering because God, in his infinite love, knows what you and I need to bring us back to him. And God will organize and arrange our circumstances based on what he knows we need. And it may not be comfortable, but it's an act of love. God also raised up an internal enemy, a fellow Israelite, Jeroboam, from the tribe of Ephraim. We're going to learn a lot more about Jeroboam in the next two weeks. He was very industrious, he was very brave, and Solomon promoted him to be over his building projects in Jerusalem. Solomon was told by God, I'm going to tear, rip the kingdom away from you. And this was announced by the prophet Ahijah. God had arranged for a divine appointment. It says that the prophet Ahijah and Jeroboam just happened to be together in a field. Nobody else around. Ahijah had a new garment. It says he tore his garment in 12 pieces, 12 squares, and gave Jeroboam 10 of the pieces and said, God is going to tear the kingdom from Solomon and you are going to rule over the 10 northern tribes. And Solomon son, Rehoboam, will rule over Judah and Benjamin. Interesting, amazing, 
God said, Jeroboam, if you obey my commands, I will establish a family dynasty for you just like I promised David. When Solomon found out that the prophet Ahijah had announced God's plan to give the ten northern tribes to Jeroboam, it says he tried to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam fled to Egypt. It's amazing. This is the wisest man in the world. God has announced his will, and, Jerob and Solomon thinks he can abrogate God's will. This is not wisdom. This is arrogance and folly, right? The other thing that is utterly amazing to us, it should shock us, is that through all of this, what's missing? Solomon never repented. Never repented. There is absolutely no record of him going to the Lord and saying, I have sinned. And yet his father David routinely, when he sinned, he said, I have sinned. He came running back to the Lord. He said, I have sinned against you and you only have I sinned. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of contrition. Solomon learned nothing, apparently, from his father David and refused to repent even when God announced doom through a prophet. He never turned from his sins, never turned back to God. We serve a God that longs to restore repentant sinners. And that should give us tremendous hope. You look at King Saul, who had no heart for God. How many chances did the Lord give him to repent and come back? Multiple. Multiple. The same with David. David would sin. God sent him. Nathan said, you have sinned. David repented. And that happened over and over again. There are several times when David numbered the people. It says his conscience smote him. It convicted him that he'd done wrong. And he said, Lord, I've sinned. He didn't even need prompting. His conscience worked over time, and he repented. He came running back. There is no record of Solomon ever repenting. And therefore, the consequences that God gave him, he was going to live with. We serve a God who longs to restore repentant sinners. And I take such comfort in that because I promise you I will sin before lunch. Guaranteed. Probably before class is over. You know, most of us, our sin is not our behavior. Our sin is our thoughts. Our sin is our motives. We start thinking, yeah, I can do this myself. Mm -mm, I got this thing, you know. Anytime you do something and you don't think you need to pray about it, that's just pride. You know, I mean, we sin in very small ways, and that's why we bring our heart to the Lord and say, Lord, cleanse me. Please cleanse me today at that point in time. So Solomon is a very uh, sobering story of how someone who is supernaturally wise, he knew intellectually what he should do. And he told us how to do it in the book of Proverbs. But he never practiced and obeyed what he knew. So it tells you that having a head full of Bible knowledge means nothing unless you do what it says. Yes? And the way we can do what it says is we have the Holy Spirit who prompts us what to do and more importantly, gives us the divine power to do it. So you and I have the ability to please God by obeying Him because we have the Holy Spirit who will guide and direct us if we submit ourselves to Him. So let's review this and then we'll do prayer and praise. Ecclesiastes 2 tells us 
Quote, if with God's power you do not discipline your desires, they will dominate you and waste your life. Invert that like a good algebraician. If with God's power you do discipline your desires, they will not dominate you. And you will not waste your life. You will live in the power of the Holy Spirit instead of living under the submission and enslavement to the flesh. Number two, only marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Invert that. Never marry anyone who loves you more than they love Jesus. Number three, guard your heart from anything or anyone that draws you away from the Lord. By the way, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's Satan and the world. Everything in this world under his authority is designed to try and entice you away from the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God, right? Spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. Pray without ceasing. Guard your heart. Pay attention to what's influencing you. Number four, the sin that you tolerate is never static. Sin always grows. So you have to kill that sin with the power of God by confession and repentance. Sin always metastasizes. And if you're not willing to let God kill that sin and repent of it and turn away from it, expect it to grow in your life. What does Hebrews 12.2 say? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also run with endurance the wraith that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, right? So the sin that entangles us, the sin that besets us, that's the stuff that Satan continually tempts us with. And he's going to do what works. So most of us don't get new temptations. We just get the same old temptation, different clothes. Shows up all the time. That's the sin that's so easily entangled. It's something we trip over every day. And that's why you bring that to the Lord and let the Lord deal with it. And lastly, you can choose to obey or disobey God, but God controls the consequences you will experience, both for obedience and for disobedience. Pray for a heart that desires to obey our King because you love Him. I love you all. This was a lot to cover. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.